We're looking at just one phrase, not even a whole sentence actually, just one phrase from the middle of a sentence in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. From heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, it doesn't go exactly like that. It goes from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But by it, Paul means heaven. And so we are legitimately to understand this phrase as from heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we're just going to break down each of the key words, each of the significant words in this phrase and seek to remind our hearts of some glorious truths that most of us, all of us, are already quite familiar with. From time to time it's good to just bring it back to the basics. And after one year, as this is actually, we haven't made much fanfare about it, but this is actually the very Sunday that constitutes one year of Covenant Reformed Baptist Church. Our first service was September 17th, 2017, and here we are, September 16th, 2018. After one year of drinking deeply of the full counsel of God being all over the Scriptures, let's just bring it back to the basics tonight and leave here tonight with the old, old story of Jesus and His love ringing in our ears. From heaven we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing we see in this passage is that the Savior comes from heaven. The source of our salvation is heaven and not earth. This is the nature of the Christian religion. The Christian religion is about salvation that comes from above. Salvation, as Jonah prayed from the belly of the whale, belongs to the Lord. We can't save ourselves. No one else can save us. There is nothing that we can do individually, collectively as a church, or even as the human race to save ourselves from the predicament that we're in. The Christian religion is not fundamentally about man's ascent to God, but about God's descent to man. Many people have misguided ideas about this. Probably the most common is this idea of works righteousness. That somehow we can be good enough for God. And so people spend their lives trying to do more good things than bad things. So that when everything is weighed up in the balances, what's in the good column will outweigh what's in the bad column. And the scales of justice will tip in favor of good people. This is the way so many people live. They wake up in the morning thinking, feeling, acting like I need to be a good person so that God will accept me. People outside of the boundaries of Christianity do this. People who don't consider themselves Christians do this. They wake up in the morning and they try to plan A good, honorable, respectful, moral day. 
and they go and try to put in uh, a good day's work at their job. Then they come home and they try to engage with their families. They try to be good husbands and good wives and good parents. They try to be diligent in all their responsibilities. They try to obey the golden rule, which does, let's acknowledge it, which does come up in more religions than Christianity. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You can find that principle elsewhere, outside of what is called Christianity. People wake up and they try to do that. They spend their lives doing these kinds of things. And they achieve some measure of success. We can look around and we can see family members and friends who are on a relative scale good people. People who you would hire in a heartbeat if you were an employer. People who you would trust to come and stay in your home and house sit for you if you were to travel abroad. People that you would lend your car to. People that you would lend money to. Because they are on a relative scale good people. You maybe look at them and their marriages and you think, wow, their marriage is strong and good. You might even think, I aspire to have a marriage like that. Nothing wrong with acknowledging that there are, on a relative scale, good people outside of the Christian faith. That are good workers, good husbands, good wives, good parents. You see them engaging with their kids, playing with their kids, giving their kids good educations, good opportunities for extracurricular activities and character development, disciplining their kids diligently, training them up to be good moral people like they themselves, the parents, are. We see people living like that and their hope is that when they die... God is going to look at the way they live and that they're going to be all right. People inside what we would call Christendom do this too. If this is their ultimate mentality, they're not actually Christians. But people that call themselves Christians live as though salvation is not from heaven, but is mustered up from within mankind or from earth, from within ourselves. And so maybe the Christian moralist, so to speak, wakes up and they know they ought to have quiet time. And so they get their Bibles out, devotional books out, and they spend some time reading, they spend some time praying, they get some Christian music going and get their praise on before work. And then they go and they do the same things as the non-Christian moralist. They try to put in a good day's work. They try to be good husbands and wives. They try to engage with their kids, so on and so forth. People inside and outside what we would call Christendom or, or Christianity, nominal Christianity, do this. And they think that they're going to save themselves. Then there are people who know that they're not going to be good enough. And so they embrace sort of a form of penance or some kind of atonement for their own sins. Maybe they embrace an 
ascetic lifestyle of suffering or self-deprivation. Maybe they embrace some kind of a monastic life. We hear about people going to live in, say, a Buddhist temple in Tibet to try to engage with God. Perhaps there are guilty feelings and they feel like if they give up their careers and give up all of these things and deprive themselves in some way and go do something like this, then they'll become acceptable to God. Or, or people with a guilty conscience who try to live the rest of their lives in service to others. Maybe someone who did something very bad. You know, a criminal. Maybe a murderer who gets out of jail and vows that he's going to spend the rest of his life helping people and serving people. And so he becomes an active volunteer. Self-salvation, atonement, penance, these kinds of things. This is, these are just examples of a myriad of ways that we act like salvation is not from heaven, but something that we work up in ourselves or something that we do for ourselves. And of course, there's a whole ideology. And again, it has sort of a non-Christian form and a Christian form that, that we collectively can fix what's wrong with this world. And so if we can just improve the level of education globally, if everybody can just be better educated, universal education... And we're not just talking equality between countries, but within a given country, trying to make sure that all the schools are up to the adequate level. If we can just even out the disparity of education and make sure that every neighborhood, every city, every county, every parish has the same level of education. If we can just do this and then spread that quality education around the whole world and look at less developed countries and educate them, then things are going to be alright. Or if everybody can just become better global citizens, living in a way that is more responsible and more sustainable, whether it be in terms of child labor and the type of clothing we buy and products we consume or whether it be issues of ecology pollution recycling if we can just all be better global citizens everything's going to be all right or again if we if we can just all obey the golden rule and do unto others as we would have them do unto us everything's going to be fine All around the world, people are living like salvation is not from heaven, but is from earth. That we ourselves individually can save ourselves somehow by either our good works or if there are a lot of bad works, by somehow atoning for, doing penance for these bad works ourselves. Or corporately. When groups of people get together, if we could just pool our resources and work together and cooperate 
and be allies and be friends and live in harmony and live in unity and embrace these duties for the betterment of mankind. Everything's going to be alright. This is such a prevalent mentality throughout the world. Right here in Barbados. This is a prevalent mentality. But listen, salvation is from heaven. From heaven. No work that we do is going to save us. This is why the Christian form of what I was just talking about is also inadequate, the so-called social gospel. If we can just treat the poor with kindness and generosity, if we can just love across demographic lines better and more effectively, then God's kingdom will come. No. Those things are manifestations of God's kingdom coming, but they're not the means by which God's kingdom comes. Because God's kingdom doesn't come from earth. God's kingdom comes from heaven and affects earth. Christianity is not about man's ascent to God, but is about God's descent to man. From heaven. From heaven. We await. Because our salvation is from heaven, the fundamental mode of our salvation is waiting. The fundamental, most primary mode of our salvation is waiting. Passive. Listen, if salvation doesn't come from you, then there's nothing that you can do to get salvation. If you're, for example, a soldier trapped behind enemy lines, and you know that salvation comes from outside of you, then you just got to sit there and wait until you're rescued. Now, when you're rescued, yeah, you've got to get up and run. But until you're rescued, you wait. We don't... get halfway there, and then Christ meets us halfway and brings us the rest of the way. Because salvation is from heaven, the fundamental mode of our salvation is waiting. Passivity. We had to wait for Christ's first coming. When the work was begun, the work of salvation, that is. Adam fell in the garden, he sinned, and God promised that he would send. A seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, an offspring of the woman to make things right. But Adam and Eve couldn't just procreate and procreate and procreate until they made that seed. They could have as many children as they wanted. But until the fullness of time came, 
when God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, families could get as big as they want. As big as they could. People could have as many babies as they would like. But until God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law, the name of the game was wait. Wait. Because we don't make the Messiah. We don't create the Messiah. He doesn't come from us. We didn't provide Him. We didn't appoint Him. We didn't send Him. If salvation is from heaven, then we got to wait until heaven sends the Messiah. And so generations went by. Cain, Abel, and Seth. All the way down. All of these genealogies we've been working through in Genesis. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Years of slavery in Egypt. An exodus from Egypt. And the entry into the promised land. The period of the judges. The period of the kings. Defeat by the Assyrians. Defeat by the Babylonians. Exile. Return from exile. Prophets speaking. And then silence. And then, the silence is broken as the angels appear saying, this day, a Savior is born. This day. Ah, from heaven. From heaven. The Savior you've been waiting for is here. We had to wait for Christ's first coming. And now we have to wait for Christ's second coming. The work of salvation has begun. But it's not complete. Our justification is complete. But justification is not synonymous with salvation. Sometimes we talk that way. Sometimes even the Bible talks that way. You have been saved. But sometimes the Bible says you are being saved. And sometimes the Bible says you will be saved. Salvation is broader than simply our justification. Christ has come to begin something that one day He's going to finish. But is there something we can do to make Him finish it now? Is there something that we can do to cause Him to finish it now? If we just pray enough, if we are just obedient enough, if we live sincerely enough and diligently enough, then Christ will return. Again, the fundamental mode of salvation for us is waiting. Passivity. One day a Savior is going to come from heaven to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. A Savior, a Savior is going to come from heaven. Now, a Savior implies the necessity of salvation, of course. From heaven, We await a Savior. 
That implies that we need saving. But what do we need saving from? In brief, sin. God gave Adam a law which Adam broke. And when Adam broke that law, he and the whole human race, which he was acting as a representative of, became guilty and corrupt. We became guilty so that no one who was ever born as a descendant of Adam, covenantally represented by Adam, which is the whole human race except for Christ Jesus, nobody who was born as a descendant of Adam, represented by Adam, has been born without guilt. We're guilty from birth. And we became not only guilty, but corrupt. We're born not only under God's judgment, but we're actually born with a sin nature. So we don't become sinners when we first sin. Rather, we first sin because we are sinners. We shouldn't have to dispute this point, because I have never heard of parents or a nursery that has to teach little ones to sin. All the kids are just playing too nice. And the parents are bored. And the nursery workers are bored. And be like, let's mix it up a little bit here. Listen, you don't have to give that toy to him. You could say mine and hit him and bite him. I've never heard of that situation. Which actually just shows us that we do the wrong things naturally. So we're born not only guilty, but corrupt. And you see that corruption manifest from an early age. As anyone who has young children of their own or has worked with young children will attest. We are born guilty and corrupt. And listen, even our environment is, has been cursed. God said to Adam in the garden, cursed is the ground because of you. An unraveling took place in the garden on the day that Adam sinned. So things don't work the way that they should anymore. Thorns and thistles infest the ground. Not only are we broken, but the world we live in is broken. Obviously a tree or a blade of grass or the pavement out here that we drive on can be guilty, but it is corrupt in the sense that it's not functioning the way that it ought to. It, it, as well as us, is cursed. But the Bible is a book of good news. It's not simply like a history book that just tells us the truth, even just the bad things that happen. In a history book, you might read of something awful like the Holocaust, and there's not really a transition point where the story takes a turn for the better. It just tells you a sad story. It just tells you a bad story because that's what happened. And it's true. The Bible could be a book like that that just tells us, well, 
This is what happened. This is how God made us. And then this is what we did and how we responded. And so now we have this book that informs us of God's judgment. The curse that we're under. It could, theoretically, just be a book of bad news. But bless God, it's not just a book of bad news. It certainly tells us the truth about the bad news. But there is a transition point. We saw that clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, which begins by telling us, you were dead in trespasses and sins. And then it says, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, has made you alive together with Christ Jesus. The Bible is a book that tells us about a Savior. A Savior who has come to undo everything wrong that has happened. Who has come to put together what has come unglued and unraveled. Who has come to fix what is broken. Who has come to right what is wrong. Who has come to render just judgment in the face of the injustices and the horrific atrocities that we commit towards one another. One who has come to comfort and to bind up the brokenhearted, to gather us to Himself and to love us with an everlasting love. And He has even to break the curse that is upon this earth. Christ Jesus came to deal with our guilt. He came to take our guilt upon Himself at the cross and suffer in our place what we deserve because of our sin. So that God may look at us and say, you justly deserve punishment, but I'm not going to punish you. Because I've punished another in your place. Christ Jesus dealt with our guilt by becoming a curse for us. So that God may be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Him. And Christ Jesus came to deal with our corruption. United to Him in His death, our sinful nature is crucified. God gives us a new nature. We are raised spiritually to walk in newness of life. This is what Romans 6 tells us. And one day our corrupt bodies, after having expired, will be renewed. And the corruption then that we have suffered in our souls and in our bodies will be undone. And we will be what we ought to be. Be raised, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, not only not corrupt, but actually incorruptible. And then Christ Jesus came even to remove the curse that is upon the earth. Romans 8 tells us that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
Oh, hallelujah. One day God will make all things new. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. From heaven, from heaven, we await a Savior. Listen, we are being rescued from sin in its entirety, in every aspect that sin has affected us. We will be rescued. Not we will get ourselves out of this mess. Remember, it's from heaven. So we don't strive to rescue ourselves from sin. Rather, we await a rescue from heaven, which comes to us in our Savior, who is, as this passage tells us, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord refers to His exaltation as God's appointed ruler over the earth. There's a sense in which as the Son of God, Christ Jesus has always been the Lord. The Lord reigns. The Lord is in heaven. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115 and verse 3 tells us. But there is a sense in which Jesus... gained for himself and was given a kingdom, was given lordship, was given rulership. You see, as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, he has always reigned. But God's plan is not simply that he should reign and then everything should be subject directly to Him. But God's plan from the beginning was that there should be a man who would rule over His creation. Who would act as a king over His creation. A vice-regent to rule over His creation. Adam was tasked with that role in the beginning, but of course he failed. And then we see Various people come along. Most obviously, the Old Testament kings, whom we might hope, whom we might expect, would rule over God's people and over all creation in a manner 
that they should have and in a manner that God originally designed, but because of the corruption of their natures, they did not. But what we see is that Christ Jesus came and kept God's law. What we see is that He came to do what Adam should have done in the beginning. To rule and to reign. To exercise dominion over His sphere of responsibility the way that He should have. He did. He was successful. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is Jesus. When we call Him the Lord Jesus Christ, the term Lord is not so much referring to Him as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, but as the Christ, as the Messiah, as that appointed representative who is the King of the Kingdom. Christ obviously refers to His identity as the Messiah also though it highlights it's broader than Lord in that it highlights not only that but also other aspects including what his name Jesus signifies in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21 we read of the angel saying that you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins that's part of his work as the Christ as well. So from heaven, from heaven comes our salvation. So we don't achieve it. We wait for it. We receive it. We don't, we don't actually, listen, we don't actually establish the kingdom. You're not going to find any phrase like that in the Bible. We don't establish the kingdom. We proclaim the kingdom. We enter the kingdom. We receive the kingdom. But we don't actually establish the kingdom. The king establishes the kingdom. The savior sent from heaven establishes the kingdom. So we await. We're not entirely passive in our Christian lives, which you guys obviously know by now, and which I've taught you clearly over this last year. And yet fundamentally, fundamentally, most primarily, the essence of the salvation that we experience 
in terms of how we experience it, is waiting, is passive. God saves us. We don't do anything to prepare ourselves for that salvation. We don't contribute part of our salvation. God saves us. From heaven, we await a Savior, Christ Jesus, the Lord. It's Him. He's the one we were waiting for in terms of His first coming, beginning that work of salvation. And it's Him. It's still Him. He's still the one we're waiting for in terms of His second coming. Paul's writing to Christians, after all, in Philippians chapter 3. And he's writing to Christians after the first coming. And he's saying, we await a Savior from heaven, Christ Jesus, the Lord. So we're still waiting. We're still waiting for that same Jesus. We're waiting for that glorious day when the trumpet sounds and He descends from heaven with a cry of command. When that passage that we read from Revelation 21 is fulfilled before our very eyes, when we see that holy city, the new Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. When we hear that voice saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. That day when He wipes away every tear from our eyes. That day when He makes all things new. We are awaiting from heaven that salvation and the Savior, Jesus Christ, who brings us that salvation. So tonight, over the next month in my absence, for the rest of your life, keep your focus on Jesus. Orient your mind toward Jesus. Orient your heart toward Jesus. Do the duties of the Christian life. Do the active things of the Christian life. But remember this fundamental truth. There is a Savior coming for you. Wait for Him. Hold on. When the going gets tough, hold on. There's a Savior coming. Like a prisoner of war who's getting mentally weak under the duress of his imprisonment. Like he would take encouragement knowing that there's salvation coming. So we ought to take encouragement knowing there is a Savior coming from heaven. Hold on. Even when things are getting bleak, hold on. When you're not doing the active things that you should be doing in the meantime, the way that you should be doing them, hold on. There's a Savior coming from heaven. When you feel like you just can't make it, hold on. He's coming. When your knees are getting weak, hold on. He's coming. When you're discouraged, hold on. He's coming. From heaven, we await a Savior. He is coming. He is coming. 
So keep your heart, keep your mind fixed on Him. Hope for, long for, remember the promise of that glorious day. Memorize this little phrase and repeat it to yourself over and over again. From heaven we await a Savior. From heaven we await a Savior. It's true. Believe it. Think on it. Meditate on it. And fix your hope on that Savior and on the salvation that He will bring.